I enjoyed it. I'll edit this down. I think when I edit it down to worthwhile content, it'll be about 12 minutes long, but... What's sad is this all sounds very much like the the, like the music I grew up listening to in church, so... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what, that's, it's Catholic music, which is pretty much sad music. It's the same thing, I think. All right. We'll fade that out, everybody. Hi. Welcome, finally... Uh, 12 minutes after our scheduled time to the live stream version of the Comical Heathen podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe. Uh, we did have a little bit of technical difficulties getting our co-host to phone in, but we are all connected and everything should be working. So let me introduce to you my good friend, a comedian from the Cleveland area, John Hensler. Hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, I don't know if you know this, Jerry. You can actually now call me the Reverend Dr. John Hensler because I'm now a member of the Church of the Subgenius paid in full. So I now have a title. It's not quite as lofty as yours. It's kind of made up and I had to pay 35 bucks for it. But <laughs> it's actually way less than what you had to pay for your doctorate. So yes, which I am in fact still paying for. I don't suppose you had to get a student loan to get your uh, certificate. Nope. Just used uh, my Trump money to do it actually. Excellent. That's a good investment. Uh, <laughs> so John, um, hosted my show for me, my show. So with the Comical Ethan podcast, I also have started doing a live show. I did a few performances uh, earlier pre in pre-pandemic days, and then I was scheduling it. John, I had this scheduled in St. Louis, in New Jersey, uh, Louisville, Toledo, Akron, etc. And all those shows got postponed and canceled. Uh, that's appropriate, to be honest. I, I'm upset, but it's a situation which I can accept uh, but anyway, the point is that there is a live show version of this. And in the live show, I have a host. And in fact, John Hensler hosted for me at the very first one at the Not Your Parents Basement show, co-produced by the Cleveland Comedy Festival. John, I know it was, it was a few months ago. Yes. What, did you, what do you remember about that show? I remember being, I remember the crowd being very into it. Uh, I remember it's, it's, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of times when you do like atheist or religious humor, it's tough because... Uh, you don't know what crowd you're getting. And even a lot of people who maybe aren't religious or atheists, they don't want to hear jokes about it. So I, it was kind of unique to have a crowd full of people who were just kind of like-minded in that sense, where even if they weren't atheists, they were still kind of open to a religious discussion and kind of commentary on religion. So I kind of think that's something hopefully we kind of build more of in the future of, you know, uh, A, just generally people being open to talking about religion and, you know, just more and more people laughing at that stuff, being willing to laugh, I guess, uh, instead of being so uptight. There's so many things that are on the table now, but I think in a lot of ways religion isn't. And like people get kind of uptight and upset when you do talk about someone else's religion to where you can't even criticize it or joke about it. Right. So I think it's a, it's a good show to kind of promote that message of this is just another thing for us to talk about. So let's talk about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I I was going for, you know, the marketing side of it, like if I'm, this is basically a self-produced show, you know, so when I go into a venue, well, the venues I've used so far have been very supportive and have helped me with marketing, but I still need to have like a marketing plan. And so in other words, I try to make it clear that that's what we're talking about. I did the last time I did the show was in March and it was down in Columbus and uh, we had 20 paid customers in the audience. And I was thrilled, you know, as comedians are to have any audience. Uh, I think that was like kind of like what you and I were just saying, like people knew even most of the people didn't even know me. So like in Cleveland, like 90% of the audiences knew, know who I am and what my 
what my interests are, but this was just people who came to see the show based on advertising and having a free evening and whatever. Uh, two people did walk out. And uh, <laughs> well, you'll get that. In fact, the way that theater was set up, they had to walk in front of the stage to leave. <laughs> and you would think as a comedian that that'd be like a great time for a dick move. But in fact, it was the opposite. Right. I like literally just said, thank you for coming. Don't even worry about it. I'm just glad you're here. And you know, that's a good approach. Big deal out of it. Well, in the shows, I've been doing a Q&A section. We actually get the people to write down questions at the beginning of the show. And then I have the host, which was you at the first show, like pick the questions without consulting me. And it's kind of almost like an improv game, right? You know, they wrote the questions. Where it goes. The questions. So that's kind of what we're trying to recreate here. You know, we got some questions across the interwebs and you've collected some questions. And most of the questions I know little or nothing about. So I'm just going to sort of college professor it and wing my way through it. And hopefully <laughs> we hit on some interesting points. Hey, that's what I did as a college student. So <laughs> winged my way through it, which is why I don't have a degree. But <laughs> so, so, you winged so your my way first question for you, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a good time and did learn some things. So good. good. <laughs> uh, so my first question is, and this has to do with the marketing aspect, because all good religions need a good marketing scheme. I've noticed on Facebook, you have been formulating your own kind of religious marketing scheme uh, with your church. Was it the, uh, the church and the invisible product of the sky? So I was wondering uh, maybe just if you can kind of expand on that a little bit more and maybe correct me if I got the name wrong and kind of <laughs> let us know what that's all about. Sure. So Mike Baker with Marv Connor, who are both uh, Akron-based Northeast Ohio comedians who are both interested in satire, started their own like new satire site called the Trillion Dollar Dreadful. And uh, they went around inviting some other comedians to contribute. And so, you know, uh, Marv asked me about it. And I said, well, I have an idea. What if I create a column in a character and the character has this new church? So I guess you would say there's a, there's a, it's a parody religion. And I called it the Church of the Invisible Product in the Sky. Uh, referring to religion as an invisible product is not an original idea of mine. I mean, many atheists and comedians have already used that phrase, but I just thought I'd expand on it. It seemed like a good starting point, like a springboard. I've published four or five so far. I'll include a link to it in the description of this podcast if anyone wants to follow up. What I try to do is take things that you actually hear either religious or religious extremists saying in sort of in real life. And then in the character of um, tier seven high priest, a pope, I uh, write a screed, which exaggerates what's actually being said. So just to give a quick example, in Ohio, just a few months ago, uh, this is current events, really, over 100 religious leaders in Ohio sent a letter in uh, to the state to get yoga removed from elementary schools. And uh, apparently this has occurred. Like, uh, I don't know if it's at the state level. Uh, the details weren't perfectly clear in the article, but basically yoga has been removed from some elementary schools because of some whiny, complaining religious letter writers. Like so on the basis of freedom of religion? Right, like se the separation of church and state. You know, so yoga state, has right. spiritual yeah. elements and Eastern Orientalism yeah. involved, besides being an exercise, I guess. So, you know, there's an argument to be made from the point of view of separation of church and state that maybe... As you said, put it on the table. Let's discuss it. Is it yeah. too religious or is it too, you know, indoctrinating? But it is ironic to have, you know, right-wing, conservative, religious, I hate to use the word nuts because I don't know them personally, but I'll just call them letter-writing right. complainers, use the separation of church and state argument, right? Because the whole deal is that right-wing <laughs> conservatives are encroaching 
on public education. Right. So what I did in the, uh, so I wrote a, a little, you know, screed from the point of view of this character in which at the beginning he agrees, you know, he says separation of church and state and you can't have yoga. But then to exaggerate the point of view, I started listing all the other things he wanted removed, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, mm. Star Wars, mm. Yoda, um, and just other feng shui, other, you know, things that are not, shall we say, that most fans don't endorse because of religious, religiousosity, pop culture stuff. And so that was my attempt. I'm not saying that as humor, it, exi- it succeeded, but as a writer, that's what I was trying to do. I took the, their initial position and then I exaggerated it trying to show how ridiculous it is. So that's what I do well, with it's that. interesting because I, I, I think the thing I was thinking of, well, if you're just teaching the kids yoga, whatever, if yep. you guys are teaching the kids yoga as in this is how you reach nirvana and the spiritual level of it, that's where it kind of becomes. But then you make a good point where you can teach a, uh, a philosophy off of Star Wars. You can teach a philosophy off of Harry Potter. You, yep. There's uh, a, a mindset and a worldview that comes with all of these types of things. So I think, I think a lot of atheists look at teaching religion in school is let's teach comparative religion. Let's not yep. teach yoga is this and it's the way to reach nirvana. Let's teach people, you know, this is how you do yoga. And, and there are people who believe that this is the way you reach nirvana or, right. you know, and in this way you, you give kids a sense of what everybody believes. And, and the, the thought is that when they see this, they go, oh, well, none of this is really true, but they understand it on a much deeper level to where they're not afraid of it. They're not criticizing it unjustly. And they right. have a sense of what it is instead of just, this is what you should be taught because this is what our society believes. And um, I think that some people misunderstand. I don't know if you ever had this conversation, John, coffee shop type conversation. People will say, how come there's no prayer in school or kids should mm-hmm. be allowed to pray? And they are. Literally yeah. any child it's- in any public school in America today, well, there are none in public schools today, but when and if there are uh, attendants to public schools, again, any kid can pray anytime they want. If they're about to take a hard test and want to say a, a silent prayer to themselves, of course they can. So no one is... You know, no one's going to, a teacher's not going to run across the room and tackle an eight-year-old and say, you can't pray and throw them right. out the window. The right. point is that the school and the state can't advocate right. a religious perspective. <laughs> so I was going to say, one more quick question for you about your religion, and then we can kind of head back in because it's a very important question to me is, uh, like, what kind of hats do you wear in your religion? Uh, that is actually going to be the subject of my next article. And Call me the uh, king of segues. Yes. And um, John, by the way, John did not know that. I did not give him that question. In fact, I think someone no. asked me that question on a Facebook post recently. So I don't know if you got that off of Facebook, but uh, thank you, Anne. Anne no, actually I, asked me about headwear for this religion. I just, I just think silly hats are essential. As much as marketing is essential to religion, absolutely, I think silly hats are equally important. When I, in post-production, I can edit this out if it bores me, but I'm going to give you like a two-minute answer because... <laughs> One okay. of my inspirations, you mentioned you're a reverend in the Church of the Subgenius, mm-hmm. is the uh, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Oh, uh, yes. Also known as Pastafarians. Mm-hmm. And um, Pastafarians are supposed to wear colanders on their head. That's their religious headwear. And, you know, like you strain spaghetti through. There's like a, from people who participate in this, you know, cultural endeavor of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, they try to get official photos taken wearing their headwear. Mm-hmm. They'll go to like the DMV and they'll Talk wear it. Early, say, I can't take your picture with that on. And then the person they'll say, this is my religious headdress. So if you let Jewish yeah. people wear their yarmulkes or Muslim people wear their, you know, 
garb. And so people get their driver's license pictures taken with this headwear on and other official photos. So I'm going to be advocating for followers of the Church of the Invisible Product to wear bunny ears and expect <laughs> an, a screed with photos about it in my next episode on the Trillion Dollar Dreadful. Well, I'm glad I asked because that was kind of a throwaway, one-off, silly question. I didn't think you're going to have a real complex answer <laughs> to, but I'm glad that you did because, uh, like I said, it's it's just it it just works so wonderfully to show the silliness of it. Really, yes. <laughs> All right. So, are you ready for uh, some of these questions? Yes, and a, you know my so, dashboard shows when people join in, and I see a Kelly, perfect, and a mm -hmm. Jesse. So, hello, Kelly and Jess. Thanks for uh, dropping in. And, uh, you know, I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Go out. Okay, we're, we are now entering the actual Q&A portion. John has some questions he's called uh, from you guys. So uh, let's lay it on me, John. What's first? Okay, so uh, Clint uh, in Ohio asked, uh, who should be added to the 3,000 gods other than yourself, of course? Sure, who should be added to 3,000 gods? I mean, I don't know where Clint gets his number, but um, this is a, a topic. I think more that, than that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So anthropologists and sociologists who study this question, and this is off the top of my head, so I'm going to be using round numbers. You're welcome to fact check me. There are at least 10,000 active religions on the earth right now and about 1 million documented religions since the beginning of like a uh, known history. And some of those uh, religions are monotheistic, but many of them are not poly polytheistic. And it also turns out it's sort of hard to count because sometimes there are gods which take many forms, like it's one god, but they appear in many forms. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes there are pantheons, Greek gods, you know, Roman gods, um, uh, Hindu gods. And then also there are spiritual religions uh, like the Japanese Shinto and some Native Americans that believe sort of like that nature is full of spirits, the spirit in the tree and the spirit of the river and that kind of thing. So what exactly are we supposed to count as gods? And so by the time you try to count it, it's it's uncountably large number. Thousands, if not millions of gods have been posited uh, throughout human history. And uh, it's one of the things that if you start to study world religion, you know, it, it undermines a couple of common premises. Some people think like, oh, there's, our, there's the one God, but he takes different forms in different societies. That's sort of a... a, a a thought that doesn't hold up well to studying world religions because how can one God like be for peace and another God be the God of war or one God, you know, love children and another God sacrifice children. There's just too many contradictions. And then finally to circle back to Clint's question, it may, it may be that because the universe exists inside of you, you are the only God that matters. So if you want to be a spiritualist who feels in like a pro empowering yourself, you know, uh, with the Verve song, Bittersweet Symphony says, I'm a million different people. I wake up every day. Hey, when you wake up tomorrow, yeah. be a god. Be your own god. Why yeah. not? See, that kind of falls into where I'm also, I mean, I, th I feel like I'm hoping creating religion is going to be the new posh thing. Because I'm creating my own religion. And in my religion, nice. we have a fake sense of a pantheon of godic side, which is how I pluralized uh, the gods in my religion. Right. And one of the things we also have are demigods. You know, there, there are humans among us who have godlike qualities, like uh, Les Claypool, for example, is a demigod <laughs> to me. Uh, just If you listen to Primus or Clinton Laypool Delirium or just anything that Les Claypool has his hands on, it's amazing. <laughs> and so to me, we can. my religion doesn't have a sense of worship. We have a sense of devotion. And you can put your devotion in various places, but if you have too much devotion okay. in one place, you become 
worship, I see no problem with putting a significant portion of my devotion towards listening to Les Claypool music. So to Absolutely. me, I put devotion towards Les Claypool as a demigod in my religion. Right. And um, I feel the same way about Pete Townsend. I would um, definitely sleep with Pete Townsend. I'm not sexually attracted to him or men, but my level of devotion to him is such that uh, I would definitely have a role in the hay with Pete Townsend. Um, well, Kelly Moore and I always talk about how we, I just, David Bowie and Iggy Pop had to have had sex at some point. We're just sure, absolutely. And, I, and on the same way, I'm not gay, but I would watch that. That would be the most <laughs> beautiful thing to me. Well, that would be a spiritual experience, masters. transcendent yes. for sure. Exactly. I, I would feel the spirit moving through me. So Absolutely. All right. You, re you ready for another one? Yeah, let's go to the next question. Okay. Uh, Eric from New York asks, uh, does God exist? Sure. I would ask, though, in a sense of, you know, does God exist? And how would you determine that? It, it, you know, if, if you're going to say, yes, God does exist, how could you determine that to be true? And do you need to determine that no, God does not exist in order to not believe in it? Sure. Eric, thank you for your question. And John, thank you for your question. It, the, you know, the question is, if we want to try to take it seriously, is circling around the question of proof. And again, I just want to remind listeners, I, I'm not really getting these questions ahead of time. So I don't have any like lesson plan in front of me. I'm mostly just riffing off the top of my head. And I was thinking about a book I saw in a bookstore recently. I thumbed through it. I haven't read it, but the title really struck me. And the title was something like A Data-Driven Approach to Parenting. And it was written by an economist, a professor from Brown University, Emily something, Emily Osler, I think. But whoever uh, she is, what she did was she took like all the research about parenting that can be turned into statistics to show how you can make like data driven. And, you know, she says up front, parenting is not a one shoe fits all type of activity. But sure. if you're looking for guidance, like should I breastfeed or should I not breastfeed? And then she goes through the data on what research shows about the benefits of doing it or not doing it, and et cetera. So it's a data-driven approach. And I was just thinking about that with uh, religion and this question of does God exist? If you took a data-driven approach, it would be a very short book because you would end up with the number <laughs> zero coming up a lot. Right. The only type of evidence which exists from a pro-religious perspective is anecdotal. And anecdotal evidence is not without merit. You know, you heard the story of um, an apple falling on Newton's head. You know, that if you just hear that story, that's an anecdote. It doesn't, but it doesn't really tell us much about gravity. It's what you might call like a springboard. So if someone says, you know, they believe in angels and they saw an angel, that's an anecdote. I'm not even prepared to say that's 100% wrong though I suspect it may be, but I would just say, <laughs> uh, well, one listener just, just texted in. Did you see that? Common sense equals data parenting. <laughs> <laughs> well, common sense That's can, uh, I mean, common sense is not always so common as they say, and it can be misleading. And so that's why the scientific method is meant to like set up double blinds against preconceptions or assumptions. And so if we take a data-driven approach to the question of does God exist, we do not end up with very much uh, data that supports the existence of uh, supernatural deities that, are, that participate in our lives. 
So, you know, everyone has their personal, I don't know, sort of like feelings. Your feelings count. My feelings count. But if we're asking like serious philosophical, theological, or scientific, um, you know, questions, we need more than anecdotes. Um, anecdotes. Yeah, well, maybe. What, yeah, what do you think, John? What? Well, I was going to say this might be a good – I might be able to ask some of the questions I have set up for you through this because maybe – I think one of the arguments um, a Christian or an apologetics would make to that is, well, isn't like if you look at the way the human body is, if you look at the way the planet is seems to be made for us. I mean, we need mm -hmm. water. The water the planet is covered with water. There's oxygen everywhere we need to breathe. Right. If the planet was just a little bit further away or closer to the sun, we'd be out of the habitable zone. And the, you know, if we had just a little bit less um, matter in our universe, our universe wouldn't even exist. So, like, isn't that proof enough for you to believe that God exists? So called creationism or in the 21st century redubbed uh, intelligent design. And I mean, it's a question. Again, I sometimes John in these chats try to phrase it as a coffee shop conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's the kind of things like if you and me and a couple of friends were hanging out, uh, we'd be in a coffee shop, we'd all have our masks on. And if someone brought this up, I, I would not try to like belittle a person. I've never actively tried to talk someone out of their religious, you know, beliefs. That's up to them. Life is tough enough. But intelligent design does not hold up well to scientific scrutiny. That's the problem. I, uh, speaking of coffeehouse conversations, I did, uh, I was with some friends years ago, you know, 20 years ago, whatever, group of people, 10 people. And I started talking about something to evolution and about how once geologists figured out that the earth was actually quite old, millions or billions of years old, it gave Darwin's theory time to work. Like for evolution to work the way Darwin describes it, you need millions, if not billions of years. But just a couple hundred years ago, people thought the earth was only thousands of years old. So there, that's where we get deep time, like deep time. So this, I was rambling about that. Okay, you can, I've set the scene, right? And my friend's right. girlfriend leans in and interrupts me and says, yeah, but that's not taking into account the Christian God. Uh, yeah, he, so, he's magical. I'm talking about you know evolution, that. geology, science, but I wasn't taking it. Mm -hmm. So that's I made this pithy comment. I said, "Do you think a geologist in India is taking into account the Christian God?" According to my calculations, <laughs> for the bad impersonation, uh, doing the voice, but you know, according to my calculations, the Himalayan mountains are at least 100 million years old. Oh, but I forgot to take into account the Christian God. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that's not how science progresses. Well, and that, that's the thing I've heard someone say once, like there's no God variable. There's no prediction that or, um, you know, mathematical equation or theory that doesn't work unless you account for God in it. Like right. these theories work without a God concept. So yep. it's like, why would you put it in there? Now you're just creating more questions as to, well, what how does this God interact with this and where does this God come from? And, you know, it, it adds yeah, more questions than it actually the, answers. We, that's called Occam's razor. And the right. fancy word is parsimony. So um, mm -hmm. ideas and theories should be as parsimonious as possible. And so, in other words, you eliminate extraneous, unnecessary guesses and information and drill down to what you really need. Some things in life are complicated. Physics is complicated. Right. How the brain works, neuroscience is complicated. But even when talking about complicated things, scientists still prefer the simplest explanation of those complicated things. And so once you add God into any answer, you've made it more complicated more without complicated. necessarily adding value to the simpler explanation. 
I mean, right off the bat, any third grader in Sunday school will ask you who created God. If God created everything, who created mm-hmm. God? So you've actually added a new question. That, <laughs> when you That was God my first. <laughs> that, that was such a fundamental question that I had. And I remember the first time that I had it, I was walking into the bathroom at church. And every time I would walk into that bathroom now, and I, I went to school in that building as well. <laughs> so every time I walked in that, I would go, if, if God created us, then who created God? And if there was yep. something that created God, then what created that? And what? And it just goes on forever. And it's funny because I have, like that didn't make sense to me and infinite regress still doesn't make sense to me. But yep. I look at it now as like, that's really the only answer. And, if, and it really does make sense if you think about it. Like, where did you come from, Jerry? Your parents, but where did your right. parents come from? Their right. parents. You know, where did this tree come from, right. an acorn? But where did that acorn come from, another tree? So that's just kind of almost how nature works, you know? Right. Yes. And and every time you ask that question, you can answer it. Like you can say, Jerry, where did you come from? Your parents. You don't have to say your parents and God. Like and that God. answer yeah, God. is more yeah. complicated, especially because the right. your parents answer is a satisfactory answer. Right. Like that does no one's going to question that and say, prove it. One other quick right. thing about intelligent design while we're on the question is that the things that you often hear mentioned, like the eye or childbirth, um, we could list a hundred other things or a million other things. Those things are not so perfect. You know, exactly. our vision is not great, even in the healthy eyes. And then people have all kinds of any, anything from blindness to eye cancer to poor vision to head, migraine headaches. Like your eyes are not well designed. And childbirth- Not to mention it sees upside down. Is, yes, it sees upside down, it sees cross. There's blood vessels going over the parts of your eyes that receive information. So it would be like having a filter in front of your camera that just made everything slightly out of focus. And same with childhood. There are better eyes in nature. Pre-modern medicine. Sorry, good. Pre-modern medicine, childbirth was a leading cause of death in women and infants. I saw a study of a European, medieval European graveyard, and a third of the bodies on earth were either uh, women in their teens or infants under the age of two. Mm. And this just indicates the dangers of childbirth. So I would think a loving and caring God who was very good at designing things would come up with a way for, even if women have to carry babies, even if women have to have childbirth, it's not perfect. It's very dangerous. Not not even the the blood or the ugliness or I'm a man and I can't look because I'm squeamish. It's just like actual (laughs) horribly designed way to create new people. Well, let me again put my God hat on, Jerry, and say, but isn't that because man is fallen? We sinned against God. And so the punishment of that is God destroyed his perfect design in order to punish us for our, you know, our existence here on the earth. It, it, doesn't that make sense to you? Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, I will say uh, in, in his uh, book on religion, Richard Dawkins raises the point that mm-hmm. uh, bringing up the evils of the world might be something to worry about, but it actually is not proof against the existence of a God. It's only proof mm-hmm. against the existence of a God who loves you. Of a good God, correct. Yes. So again, uh, sometimes I, if some people say the God of the Old Testament is a bit of a bastard, uh, but that doesn't mean he's not <laughs> well, God. <laughs> he very well may be. Yeah. I, that, and that was kind of like the second question I had as far as the fall of man mm-hmm. um, when I was growing up was, because first off, God knew, like, like when God came into the the, uh, yeah. uh, the garden and Adam Eve's hid, and once they came out, he was like, well, why are you wearing fig leaves? And that was confusing to me as a child because it's like, if I showed up to church naked, that would be a thing. And yet God was somehow upset with Adam and Eve for clothing themselves and showing modesty. 
Yeah. And the whole reason why they got kicked out, the whole concept of the apple or pomegranate or whatever it happened to be, was it was the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that confused me too. Like, if God wants us to be good moral right. people, why wouldn't he just imbue that in his and why would he be yeah. mad at us for actually trying to achieve that knowledge? Yes, indeed. So ergo, it's been described as a setup from the beginning. <laughs> right? Yeah. He put Adam and Eve in the garden with the tree, told them, don't you eat from that tree. Mm -hmm. And John, um, you know that there were two forbidden trees in the Garden of Eden. Yes. The tree the of life one. was the other. Well, yep. you could eat off the tree of life, but not after you've eaten off the tree of knowledge, because then you would be like God. And that right. was the, that, they didn't want you to be their equal. They wanted you to be their lesson. Correct. Which, and um, which, the, in, the, in that story, the tempter of Eve is a snake or a serpent. It's not the mm -hmm. devil. So, Correct. Uh, well, at least not the Jews, the Christians it is. But to the, yeah, I see what no, you're saying, to the original no, scripture. I mean, I'm, yeah, don't I'm say anything that. about Lucifer. Uh, yeah, I'm going to like back that up. You can say to Christians it is. But if you're reading right. an edition of the Bible that says Satan it's in the form of the serpent, right. blah, 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 that is not a translation of yeah. the original. Right. It's, it's, totally I guess I should have said it's, it's, it's Christian tradition that... Right. That's yeah, Christian it's, tradition. It's not. They believe it, but they have no basis for yeah, actually. Some Christians it. have interpreted the metaphor of the serpent as being the presence of Satan. But in the story, it is only a serpent. And my other favorite thing about the story is if you look at the things a serpent says, because he has like three or four lines of dialogue in the scene, everything he says is true. Yeah. He does <laughs> He's not a good lie. guy. He simply explains to Eve what, what's going on with the tree. Yeah, to me, uh, at least into my college years, I started looking at Satan as maybe the hero in this story. You know, mm -hmm. he's the one who said, yeah, God doesn't want you to be like him. God wants you to be just a, a lowly human. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and he's the one who convinced us. Well, John, what else you got for us? Okay, so uh, we have one more, I think, uh, from the Internet. Um, and let me see if I can find it. I forget that is this. Uh, I think this is from Ken in Ohio. Uh, okay. He asks, if God doesn't exist and there's no afterlife, then why care about this life here on Earth? Right. Or they, why not just go Mad Max style? You know. Yeah, Mad Max style. That's how we put it. Um, hey, Ken is a friend of mine. Uh, he lives in Northeast Ohio. He comes out to comedy sometimes. He comments on my Facebook post sometimes. I want to give a shout out to Ken. I, I, I'm not going to psychoanalyze Ken right now. Say. He, Post colorful things, and uh, he has his perspective uh, and his tinfoil hat. <laughs> but um, he, he sometimes does make comments like this. It's not even clear to me how religious Ken is, and we don't need to know. But the question he raises is one that is sometimes asked by Christian apologists, right? Like, if there wasn't a God, what's stopping me from raping you right now, or murdering, or going out in the street and mad right. macking it? And why wouldn't you? Yeah, why wouldn't you? And the we get some responses to that. The first one is anyone who asks that question, I don't mean Ken. So I'm taking Ken off the table right now. You got to wonder what kind of fantasies they have. I mean, aren't they sort of revealing sure. something about anyone who would ask you that question? <laughs> aren't they revealing something about right. themselves? What are they uh, really saying? Yeah. Yes. And then again, without, you know, lingering on any Ken or anyone else in particular, because I can't psychoanalyze anybody in this, like in the brief time that we have. The other thing is it just adds the same thing we were talking about earlier of it actually complicates the question to bring God into 
moral and ethical decision-making because it's like saying, like right now, as a fact, me and John and Ken, we are not raping or murdering anyone. Like that's already happening, right? Right. So now like Christians many times. Yeah, a third party wants to say, well, Jerry, is the reason you're not raping and murdering right now because of God? To which I would say, no, because those are unethical, immoral things. And I think about the consequences of my actions. And I don't need a right. God framework to, you know, adopt and understand, you know, an ethical perspective. Well, I'll say this because uh, you know, John, and then I have a one more part to my answer, but it's always, sure, I always so tell I my students they have to stop me from talking because otherwise I'll never stop talking. Well, go ahead because then I'll, I'll, I'll still relay off of what you're going to say. So go ahead. Well, I just wanted to go on one other angle, which is the data driven approach. Research has been done on this question. And the question could be loosely framed as, does religion make people behave better? So you could mm -hmm. say, like, are religious people better behaved? And, of course, some of your uh, religious apologists will go, like, immediately to an extreme example, like Hitler or Stalin. And, again, there's a lot of research about investigating religiosity, like, in cults. Like, Stalin may have been an atheist, but he was clearly a cult leader. So Correct. I want to take those few outliers out and just say, you know, a large percentage of Americans and the Western world are atheists and we do not commit heinous crimes. And there are people who study the statistics on this. For example, over 90% of the incarcerated in America identify with a religion. Mm -hmm. Very, Very few, few atheists yes. are in jail. <laughs> Very few. Similarly, uh, there's a researcher, his name's actually Gregory Paul. I might put a link in this so people want to follow up on him. He did a cross-national correlation in which he looked for indicators of religiosity or theocracy. And then he looked at indicators of social health. And a religious person might guess that the more religious or theocratic a, a nation was, the higher social health it would have. But in fact, John... It's the opposite. Let me guess. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> exactly. It's exactly, you know. So if you just look at things like uh, infant mortality rate or even abortion rates or drug usage, addiction rates, and just any th crime rates, incarceration rates, and the countries that have higher indicators of religiosity have bigger problems in these areas. So if we were going to take a data-driven approach, we would end up concluding that... Uh, Religion is at least not helping, if not making things worse. Come to a conclusion as to why you're doing a thing and why you wouldn't do a thing. And you have a sense of at least some sense, something that's objected to you as to my goal is this. And if I do this and that achieves that goal, if I do this and it goes against that goal, that's a better way of doing something rather than this. I, you know, I have nothing wrong with gay people, but my God says that I can't love right. them. Like, like that's right. to me, it's like... To, for you to discriminate against, for you, I know so many good people who are like, I see, I have gay friends, I don't care. I'm just saying they shouldn't be married. And right. it's like, if you can see the ridiculousness in that, why are you referring to something that you see as being like an incorrect moral and not just go with, you know, the morals that make sense to you, you know? You know, I have a, uh, this is again, it's off the top of my head, so we'd have to look it up. But I did see a survey once that showed that young adult evangelicals, I don't know, like ages 15 to 25, I don't know the exact age range, are significantly more pro-gay marriage than their parents are. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and, and I think people are getting less. I think we talked about the last time about how um, the nuns, so to speak, are the highest growing religion. The people who say they're not saying they're atheists, but they're not saying that they're religious either. And I think as you see, I think that was growing even like in my parents' generation. My parents were very religious, but they weren't as serious about it as some people, you know, so mm -hmm. I think it was easier for me to kind of step away from. And I had a, um, a gay cousin and my mom right. called me out. I was being very homophobic in high school with my friends. And my mom said, well, you know, your cousin Rick is gay. And like that kind of made me it, it, it took it away from right. just like gay people are these people. And we can make fun of them to, oh, there's someone that I sort of kind of know. Um, and, and so like my mom kind of taught me the opposite of what a lot sure. of people do. So I think I think you're going to see that a lot more of people who were raised by religious parents, but their parents didn't really take it as seriously, which allows the kids to be a little less serious as adults and, and teenagers as well. I want to just um, like an asterisk something you said, just because people are listening. When uh, John mentioned the rise of the nuns, that does mean N-O-N-E-S, and it comes from ticking the box that says none of the above on surveys about religion. So the idea would be if you took a survey and it said, what religion are you? And it listed all like the 10 most famous religions or whatever. And somewhere at the bottom of the list was a box that said none. The number of people who pick none has grown significantly. I think a recent Pew survey, I mean, in the 2010s, like that recent, placed it at somewhere around 12%. Again, off the top of my head, but it was, it was pretty high. And um, it was also growing like the decade before that same number might have been two or three percent so the amount of growth was huge and as john said not everybody who picks none is declaring themselves an atheist or an agnostic you know or a godless communist there are a lot of them are just picking that they don't participate in organized religion anymore or they might be spiritual but not dogmatic something like that but the nuns are the fastest growing religious group in america well, be that as it may um you know, the religion that you're raised in gives you certain cultural biases. Some you might be aware of and some you might not be aware of. And so there's no doubt that uh, there's a kind of a feedback loop between your religious upbringing or beliefs as an adult and certain types of confirmation biases or instances of confirmation bias. Okay. Well, I think I've gotten through all the ones that we uh, got offline. So I'm just going to kind of, we hit some of the ones I was going to talk about. So um, let's go into this way, because you were talking about um, morality. Where do you get your morality from? And so first, I, I'm going to put my Christian hat back on real quick. But first, I wanted to um, – this is a common Penn Jillette, uh answer to that question. of Why aren't you out murdering and raping people? Or you know, why don't you rape all the and murder all the people you want? And he right. says, well, in fact, I do rape and murder all the people I want. And that number <laughs> happens to be zero. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know where you're getting that. But I think what I the approach approach I try to take with it, and this is what a lot of kind of theists have said to me is I'm not saying that I necessarily would go out and do this stuff or that it's God who's prohibiting me. It's that man is just our na natural instinct is just to go out and rape and murder. But it's the fact that God imbued this sense of morality on us that made us not want to do that. Right. So it's not necessarily that it's because I'm afraid of God that I'm doing it. It's because God gave me that morality sure. in order to not even want to. So and then to your question, like, so it's a kind of a what if question. What if your sense of moral restraint or ethical goodness is imbued into you by God? So that brings us to a, a way to talk about a couple of things that we have also already hinted at. First of all, 
it brings up the natural question of if it's a God-given gift that we're moral, then why hasn't God given that gift to everyone? So, well, they just don't want to accept I mean, it. <laughs> nonetheless, one of my favorite Eddie Izzard quotes is, don't you think if there was a God, he would have flicked Hitler's head off? So, <laughs> well, maybe he is in the afterlife right now, Jerry. So. <laughs> well, that didn't Maybe help, that's his torture. Know, that didn't help six million Jews. That's all I'm saying. So, well, they got to go to heaven for free, so... There, yeah, there's no, there's no explanation of the Holocaust from a religious person. I'm sorry, from a God-fearing religious person that doesn't include that mm. God allowed it to happen. So right. we end up with um, it either is a creates a contradiction, lo a logical paradox where God gave it to us this sense of moral restraint, but didn't give it to everybody. Mm. In which case, God, if this God exists is now personally responsible for every evil deed done by man versus man. The other problem with that answer is just to reiterate Occam's razor, it's an unnecessary complication. Me and Penn Jillette and you and you know all of the nuns uh, <laughs> in the Pew survey mm -hmm. go about our daily lives not raping and murdering, and we don't need to add God into the explanation. Like It adds no value to the ethical discussion uh, from a like a mathematical perspective. It just adds another, it adds a God variable into the conversation, but the God variable brings no Nothing additional to help to what we're discussing. Right. So I guess a good uh, question to piggyback off that is then, like, where do morals come from? Are they, can there be objective morality or is it purely subjective? And how have you determined your own morality? How is it, how have you validated that morality to be true? And why would anybody else follow your morality or why should they? So Sam That's Harris has written a book about this called The Moral Landscape, and Sam Harris mm -hmm. is actually uh, a neuroscientist himself. Uh, Richard Dawkins, of course, his background is in um, evolutionary biology, and both of them and others have posited that in general, our sense of moral restraint can be accounted for by the process of evolution. We could imagine ancestors of ours, uh, you know, a million years ago, and ones who were... Um, just let's just let's just say hypothetically too violent to the point where they were not helping their communities or tribes survive would be shall we say called by their uh, tribe mate and so if you do that for a million years it is almost like we've domesticated ourselves humans are a domesticated mm -hmm. animal there's natural selection and then there's artificial selection and artificial artificial selection is used to explain breeding. Like why are there different types of dogs? Cause humans have bred them. Well, when you breed um, domesticated animals, they, their characteristic character, physical, emotional, psychological characteristics change compared to their wild forebears. For example, uh, wolves can move their ears more readily than dogs can. And uh, hum uh, apes can move their ears more than humans can. So there are there is evidence that humans are actually the domesticated version of wild humans. And uh, artificial selection and the process of evolution can account for most of the moral landscape that we see uh, in all likelihood. That's an interesting concept of humans being domesticated because mm -hmm. that's that's absolutely not wrong. But I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I mean, I, I guess I have in a sense of we're certainly not, we're not animals in the sense that, you know, in the wild. But like when you think of domestication, you think like a horse is domesticated or a right. dog or a cat. Yep. 
but yeah, we are we are very separate from our nearest uh, evolutionary ancestors. So that's yep. that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yep. And then I and so I think uh, there is a a, a certainly a, a a compelling answer from evolution about where our to use Sam Harris's expression moral landscape comes from. And then I'd also point out, um, like if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's like thou shalt not murder. That's fine. And we find that in a lot of religions or even communities around the world. So there seems to be, like it has been suggested, I've in fact checked this, that the golden rule, you know, do unto others as they you would have them do unto you, is somewhat universal through communities. I have an analogy that I use with students sometimes, which is um, if you go around the world, and I mean, I don't care what country, what continent, Inuits or Aboriginals or anyone around the globe that has dwellings of any kind, even tents or permanent buildings, the doors that they make will be suited for the human body to pass through. So I make that observation because the doors themselves could be very different. The buildings could be different. Ornamentation could be different. Connotations mm -hmm. and metaphors could be different. So the cultural elements are not universally described, but, but there is a biological element to doors, which is an absolute requirement. Um, how about one or two more quick ones, John, and then we'll move towards an ending. I have one really quick one that I want to end with. Um, okay. maybe, uh, so I don't know your, the level of your parents' religiosity, but here's a question that has been kind of floating around some atheist circles. And like, mm -hmm. uh, if one of your parents were on their deathbed and asked you to like, sit down, I don't know what the Jewish equivalent would be to like the, I think they call it like the. S salvation prayer or like, you know, the off father okay. or whatever. If, if, if one of your parents asked you to do that as an atheist, would you feel comfortable with that? Would you just do it just as, well, they want me to do it. Like, how would you re react to that? Well, I mean, my um, mother has passed away. My father is still with us. They were both in my upbringing, like mildly religious. Definitely neither of them would be atheist or agnostic. But for example, as a child, we never went to church. Simply okay. never. Uh, my father's Jewish, and we were raised in a very, very low level, like highly assimilated, you know, okay. we Christmas trees. And my mother wasn't Jewish, but she wasn't like, and she never once suggested that we go to church or took us to church. And we would occasionally talk about religion, but it would never get that deep. And I only say that to say the, the scenario that you're painting would be like a very extreme hypothetical one for me. Right. You, yeah, right. But the exactly. way I would answer it is, some of those types of events have a ritualistic aspect to them. And I would gladly participate in any ritual that would make a close friend or family member feel better. As long as I did not have to personally acknowledge the existence of any supernatural beings. So like if, if there was a, a salvation prayer circle and a parent or loved one wanted me there, I would probably sit in but I wouldn't say or do anything that actually acknowledged, you know, I would sit quietly while the other people were doing their thing. You know, yeah, similarly, that seems to be kind at, my, at my mother's funeral, my father brought in a Baptist preacher to do a, you know, a funeral service. And he was a perfectly nice gentlemanly guy. And he said some religious things that I would definitely not agree with if we got him on the podcast and he wanted to ask me some questions or I could ask him some questions. But in terms of setting through the funeral that, you know, did not offend me. I was, there to be supportive and participate in a you know public ritual, but so as long as I didn't have to somehow, like personally acknowledge, like participate in a baptism or something, 
like that. I would not mind sitting in on a religious ritual to support a family member or loved one. I think that seems to be kind of the general consensus of most, most atheists that I've heard answer this. Yeah, I mean, what does it hurt me to go through the motions? But I wouldn't ask them to denounce mm-hmm. their God on my deathbed. You know, if they came, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah. I need you to say you don't believe in God to comfort yep. me. You know, um, and to your, to your point about the funeral, I, I've been to, I think, maybe three um, uh, funerals since I was an atheist. And I really have to, like, control my scoffing, my, my out loud scoffing. Yep. Yep. Try to just kind of limit it to eye rolls because it's just like – Oh yeah, I know people here believe this and it's comforting to them, but it's just such bullshit to me. You know, so it is. It's 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 a challenge, but it's it's something you kind of need to do as part of uh, in this society. My wife uh, will never listen to this, so I'm going to tell you two quick stories about my wife, and then we'll go to your last question. (laughs) First, I want to mention my wife loves horror movies. I think the the Ring, both the Japanese and the American versions, that might be her two favorite movies. Also, Silence of the Lambs, that's probably her all time favorite movie. Not really horror, but still. Um, but she's from Japan, by the way, people who don't know. And, uh, when we moved to America in the nineties, they did like a 20th anniversary re-release of the exorcist, which I had already Mm -hmm. seen many times, but she had never seen. And she was like, Oh, this is like the most famous horror movie of all time. Like she wanted to go, we went to the cinema and we watched it. And again, I was like, probably like 26, 27. I had my eyes closed the whole time. I'm surprised I didn't pee my pants. That movie has psychologically damaged (laughs) me. She sat through the whole thing. With her arms crossed, shaking her head, just going, not scary, not scary. No. no. And when it was over, she said, that movie's not scary at all. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is my wife's description of The Exorcist. That is a movie about a very sick little girl whose parents refused to get her help. Mm, my gosh, what a perspective. You know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's not a Catholic. She's not a Christian. She wasn't raised. So I'm not religious, but I was raised with like the Catholic mythology. So I could like buy yeah. into the story elements. That scares you. Yeah. Right. But she, to her, all the story elements was, why is that family bringing a priest in when their daughter right. is clearly so ill? And uh, Yeah. Like the, the horror is the neglect that they're heaping upon this child. Yeah. Like this child obviously <laughs> has mental issues or some sort of phys- – like and yeah. you're just like, oh, I'll get a, an old priest and a young priest. And- <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and the funny. cure will be murdering the young priest. Like the death of the young – Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put the devil in that guy and throw him out the window. Like, and um, oh goodness, there was like, uh, oh, exorcist spoiler alert. So, Kelly, Kelly mm-hmm. just texted in spoiler alert. I gotta say, uh, Kelly, uh, <laughs> big digression, everybody. I have a spoiler alert rule in this modern world for a movie, two weekends, for a TV show, three days. So, if you haven't seen The Exorcist in the past, you know, uh, two weeks then spoiler alerts are off. <laughs> if you care <laughs> yeah. about how The Exorcist ends, go watch it immediately. You've had, um, what, 50 years, so. Yes, you're kind of behind the curveball there. All right, so are you ready for my amazing last question? Okay, okay, everyone, this is the amazing last question, and then we're going to wrap this baby up. Okay, so I was going to run down and do the four best arguments, so to speak, for God, and I got I got through a couple of them just in the course of conversation, but one that has always kind of just stumped me. I, I really, hey, I don't know. I'll, I'll just get into it. Hey, another listener has joined us. Uh, the End Is Nigh show is under the studio. Welcome, End Is Nigh show. Awesome. Hey, text me or something. I want to know more about your show. But um, you've come to the end, actually. We've been babbling here for about an hour, mm-hmm. doing some questions and having some fun. And this is going to be the last question that we do. So um, thanks for coming along for the ride. All right, John, over to you and your last question. 
uh, I'm going to go into the ontological argument for God real quick, which is an old argument, and it's it's one of the most confusing to me. So maybe I'm just going to throw it out to you um, in two of its forms real quick and see if you can make sense of it. Uh, definitely, uh, it says God, and these are simplified versions that kind right. of just give you a sense of it. Uh, God is a being which has every perfection, and this is true by a matter of definition, so we can presuppose it. Uh, sure. Existence is a perfection, hence God exists, right? right? So it's kind mm-hmm. of basically saying if God has every perfection and existence is one of those perfections, then through circular logic, God exists. This is the one that really kind of confuses me, and yeah. like I said, maybe you can kind of make sense of it. It says, I conceive of a being than which no greater can be conceived. If a being than which no greater can be conceived does not exist, then I could conceive of a greater being than a being than which no greater being can be conceived, namely, a being than which no greater can be conceived that exists. I cannot conceive of a being greater than a being than which greater can be conceived. Hence, a being than which no greater can be conceived exists. (laughs) So I guess my question off to you, Jay, on the back of that is, um, what do you think of that? (laughs) <laughs> so I think philosophy is a engaging and messy topic. I teach an intro to philosophy class uh, at the college where I teach. And um, one of the first things I say, because it's an intro class, is that if you get into philosophy, you'll find that some uh, philosophers are very verbose. They want to be thorough. They want to be super. <laughs> the end is nice. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. You just texted in. I don't know what you just said, but it's his new favorite rap chorus. <laughs> <laughs> So both of those, you know, um, ideas are verbose, seem a little overly complicated. Uh, I know what's happening there. I've, I've actually seen both of them. I think the first one might even appear in my lecture notes somewhere. Uh, the first one is in the form of what's called a syllogism. But uh, syllogism is a form of logical argument where you have like a main premise, an extended premise, and then a conclusion. And it used to be more popular in classical philosophy both of these definitions are kind of, I don't know where you got them from specifically, but they are reminiscent of an older brand of philosophy. They seem a little circular and they do like, they demand for these definitions to work, to demand a certain level of already believing in what you're talking about. So you did describe them as circular. You know, the universe might be the greatest being that exists that we can conceive of. Sure. And it exists and it exists without adding the extra element of a supernatural being. Right. And we know what it does. We know it exists. Yeah. You don't have to really prove it to me. Like, so again, it doesn't. I mean, you brought yeah. up infinite regress. That's one of the problems with these types of arguments is that if you add in just, well, then who created God? It kind of falls right. apart quickly as a logical argument. But, you know, one of my favorite uh, philosophers and theologians, and he was not an atheist. Uh, I want to say that up front is Soren Kierkegaard. I think if Kierkegaard was alive in the 21st century, he would be an atheist, but that's just me projecting onto him a little bit. But he definitely wasn't when he was alive. But he made the obs- he essentially created our modern idea that uh, belief in God should be based on faith. By exploring the idea of faith, he kind of created modern psychology 50 years before Freud did. So he's a really interesting writer. He basically sort of acknowledged there, you cannot use logic and you cannot use science. All you have is faith. But then yeah. he did add that anyone who like, is like a really, truly committed to their faith, like really, really believes it deep down in their heart is a one in a million person. And the rest of society would think that person was mad. 
Yes. That's actually really interesting because I, I have an argument that I tell people when people say, oh, well, can you prove God doesn't exist? And I say, no, but I can prove that you don't believe in God. And they love that challenge. Sure. I simply point out, I ask them, you get cancer, are you going to pray or are you going to go to the doctors? And of course, they right. get out of it by saying, well, I would go to the doctors because the doctors, you know, God, you know, leads the doctors God, to do it. It's like, God no, no, the doctors, yep. you're saying. <laughs> Yeah. So you're saying God is not powerful enough then to actually heal you, that he needs humans to heal you. So so you don't really believe in God the way you do, or else you would just say, oh, I would just pray. And if God wanted to heal me, he would heal me. If he didn't, then I would die and I would go to heaven and he would take care of my family that's left here on earth. If you were going to be objective, you're you're stuck with a problem. And I mean, the religious apologist is stuck with the problem of about every two years, cancer treatments get better. Right. So if you got cancer two years ago, you're in a worse position than someone who gets cancer two years from now. So why is God making the two years ago guy's life worse and the two years from now guy's life better? And uh, the end is the end is nigh. Show did text in a thing after your rant, um, paraphrasing a little bit, but he's talking about how some of this is rooted in the premise that time is linear. So we don't we don't have time to go into the history of time. Mm-hmm. All right. John, we have been babbling about some Q&A, vaguely related to my Comical Heathen Live show. I'll remind everyone that the Comical Heathen Live show has basically been temporarily suspended uh, until things improve with the pandemic. Uh, I, I'm in touch with a couple of venues, so we'll get back on the schedule as soon as it's safe to do so. And maybe 2021 will be the year of the Comical Heathen Tour. And if anybody listening to this podcast uh, wants to bring the live show to your town, email me. We'll find a venue. And you know, if we get five people or 50 people, we'll have fun. So I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to say thanks to John for being my co-host. He's co-hosted the live show. He curated all the questions today and has been helping us you know, stay on track. So thank you, John, for doing this with me. Absolutely. Hey, uh, one more person just entered, someone called Variety Mac. Hey, Variety Mac, we're just ending the show. I'm glad you're interested and uh, shout out for joining us. I'm actually going to edit this and post it as a regular episode in a few days. So please watch for that. And uh and when it comes out, please share it. You know, if you tell two friends and you tell two friends, we'll all be using the same shampoo soon. <laughs> John, any any last goodbyes you want to throw out there? No, I just want to say thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a kind of a stressful weekend, and I was kind of just stressed out about doing this on top of everything. But it's been very cathartic. Uh, this is just conversation that I really just enjoy having. A lot yeah. of people say to atheists, well, if you don't believe in God, why do you care so much? Why do you talk so much? Because it's a fascinating thing to me, just – whether or not there is a God, the concept of God throughout the ages, and why people actually believe in this, to me, it's worth talking about. So I'm glad you're having me on the show to talk about it, because it's definitely one of my favorite topics of conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining in. Uh, Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm going to play some of the generic sad music that Podbean provides, but I'll be inserting my actual theme music in the edited version. Take care, everyone. There's some sad music for you, John. I love it. Sometimes I just need in touch with my sadness. <laughs> that sounds pretty chipper. Let's see, they have a category called sad. <laughs> that let's seems play, more appropriate. Let's play some sad music for a few seconds. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm feeling it now. That is that is some sad music. <laughs>